You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today I'm with Stetson Blake, who is running Flask in production, and Flask is a web framework written in Python. Stetson, welcome to the show. Hey, Nick. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. So do you want to start things off today by letting people know a little bit about the app that we're going to be going over? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So the app is a side project of mine called Early Bird uh, without the I. So it's BRD. And it is a alerting service for freelancers to basically uh, get an email anytime a uh, freelance board posts a new job that fits their criteria. Nice. When you say like freelance board, is that, um, uh, what's the name of that one? Like freelancer Upwork? Is it all of them? Yeah, so it's, it's Upwork today. I, I wasn't sure if I, I should say which it was, but yeah, it's Upwork today. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you can definitely talk a little bit about that. As for developing this project itself, are you the only developer or is it a small team? Yeah, yeah. So this is single developer. It's just me <laughs> developing, marketing, everything. Yeah. Nice. And then um, how long has the site been up for? Yeah, so I launched in March of this year, so about eight months. So how how are things going with that? Yeah, pretty good. Um, there initially early on were a lot of different issues and things crashing, uh, but luckily I was uh, pretty well prepared to uh, respond to those and, and iterate pretty quickly. Um, so it's been a lot of fun. Nice. So it's been up for, you know, eight-ish months or whatever. Are you running the latest stable build of Flask? I am, yeah. I'm on 1.1.1. I think is like a month or two old. Right. Yeah, it's pretty new. Well, in the Flask sense, it's kind of weird because sometimes they go like a whole entire year without an update. But <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, 1.0, I think, was really big there. Yeah. And then what about Python? Is this uh, a 2.7 app or did you upgrade to 3x? Yeah, we're on uh, 3.7. Did it start at 3.7 or did you upgrade to that? I, I started at 3.7, yeah. Yeah, good call. Because now it's like really close to the end of... Um, 2019, you know, we only have a couple of weeks left and then it's end of life. Yeah, it's kind of down. <laughs> yep. So when it came to developing this um, this application, what did you think to yourself before you decided to use Flask? That, that was a big, I guess, inflection point. I, I hadn't a lot of experience with other web frameworks. I was actually really familiar with Python already, um, just from other side projects and working with it um, in my full-time job. Um, so Flask kind of just came naturally. Um, I knew like some PHP, but I hadn't touched that in like many years. So Flask was a pretty easy choice. Cool. So when it came to using Flask, you know, you mentioned you had a little bit of Python experience. Did you look at other web frameworks in Python like Django and other ones? Yeah, definitely did. Um, that That's something I kind of grappled with was like Django versus Flask. And for a while I did like a ton of research and it, it kind of ended up being a waste. Um, <laughs> I kind of concluded that Django was too heavy to use. Um, Flask, uh, if, as you know, is like very kind of, I, I guess, freeing, right? You can use um, whatever you'd like, which is a bit of a double-edged sword. Um, so Django does some things that are really nice, like the admin panel and other things, and Flask kind of just doesn't have it or lets the user choose and, and pull things in. So Right. Yeah, no, it, it definitely is like a double-edged sword because it's like, well, on the Django side, you have batteries included, but then Flask is like, the most polar opposite ever of that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, there's just so so many different ways you could go about it. So, uh, But I, in the end, I, I like that. And then so far, so good. Like, are you happy with your decision to use Flask? 
Yeah, I, I actually am really happy with Flask. Um, the thing that kind of cemented it, weirdly enough, like I, I didn't want a framework that was super niche to the point like there was no community support. Um, there, there's great community support for Flask. Like it's awesome. There's people everywhere. Um, but actually, I think there was like a developer survey through, I, I think it was PyCharm. I want to say in 2018, it was like Flask and Django were about half and half, um, at least for that, you know, very biased trial of PyCharm users. So there's definitely big support behind it. Yeah, no, I, I find that to be really helpful. It's like, you know, even if you have a lot of experience, you know, you're always getting stuck on things left and right. Being able to just whip open Google, do a search for your exact problem and finding a solution is really, really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. And I didn't want to pick something that uh, this probably wouldn't happen. It's probably a fear that's kind of unwarranted, but I didn't want to pick a framework and then like a year or two down the line, there'd just be no support or nobody's using it. And I'm kind of the weird guy with this app. <laughs> I don't know what to do with. Yeah, definitely. And if it ever gets to the point where it's like, you know, you want to scale out to more developers because it's a huge success, then it's like hiring becomes a problem. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was a big choice. That was something I had thought about as well, like the, that I was really considering PHP for, um, is that there's just developers everywhere. Like everybody knows PHP. So it seems that it'd be pretty easy to hire, uh, but I'm not certain on that assumption. <laughs> now, I guess the money question is like, you know, it seems like you're very happy with Flask, but just for clarity here, if you were to rewrite this app today from scratch, would you still use it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think I would. Um, a good kind of trend that I've noticed or what I've started to get into is actually... Uh, using something like Vue.js on the front end and then using Flask just for, you know, kind of back end and business logic. And that kind of, I, I think I'd be okay with that because I really like writing Python code. Um, so I think implementing, you, get, you, keep, you keep that kind of core functionality. I don't think it changes too much. And I think you gain a good bit. So when it comes to back end, is the application as of right now, is it rendered using like server server render templates with a little bit of JavaScript or is an, an API-based backend with something like React on the front end? Sure, yeah, there is no JavaScript today. Um, it's all Flask rendered with uh, Jinja 2, so yeah. Right, do you want to give the TLDR and what Jinja 2 is for listeners? Yeah, sure, so Jinja 2 is a templating kind of engine that lets you, basically if you had an HTML document, you could use certain, I guess you'd call them maybe operators and kind of pop in variables um, from your Flask application. It, it's it's really powerful because it also has like logic, right? So you can say for all jobs in the user's table, return like this HTML element and it'll just pop everything out. Uh, so Jinja 2 is awesome. Yeah, no, I'm a big fan. And that's also the uh, default template language for Flask as well. Yeah, absolutely. So when it came to that decision to use server-side templates, like did you Google for like server-side templates versus API backend and all that stuff? Yeah, I, I think what's important um, for me my decision process is I was kind of a noob coming to a lot of this. So I really kind of built, used what was built into Flask. In this case, it was Jinja 2. So I didn't really know to Google other things and, and like make those more um, higher level decisions. Kind of just rolled with it. <laughs> I think that's a good idea. It's like at some point you just have to pull the trigger and just code your app. Otherwise, you're going to be stuck in like research hell. Yeah, exactly. So are there any like special like components of your application that requires like, you know, like real time notifications or offline support or anything like that? Yeah. So being a alerting service, <laughs> uh, we definitely send uh, today email alerts to users. Okay. So yeah, <laughs> no, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, I, I can go into that a little more. The way that's kind of architected today, um, 
actually really recent. So it used to be where I was just sending like a post request to Mailgun. And that's kind of a blocking um, function, right? And I actually just recently moved to Celery to do that kind of alerting process. Nice. Yeah, that makes sense because it's like you go off and you contact Mailgun and it's like, well, you're waiting for two or three seconds now. And suddenly if 10 people are doing that, it's like, uh-oh, your web server is blocked. Yep, exactly. So was that the first time you've ever worked with Celery for this project? Uh, so I actually worked with Celery in a previous job, but never like really deep. Um, I kind of had just heard of it and it's like, huh, what's this like message queuing thing? What's this all about? Um, and it, it started to make more and more sense um, as I, I guess, got more deeper into that development process. So you mentioned sending out email notifications. If people sign up to your service, do you also send like like notifications to them throughout your app or no? Yeah, so most of the interaction through my app is just via email. They don't Users can kind of set their feed and, and go. They don't really need to uh, log in, which I'm realizing might be a mistake. Uh, but yeah, it's mostly just emails sent after the fact. If they want to tweak some things or tweak settings, they might log in and, and adjust those. Hmm. It's interesting to hear that you think that might be a mistake, but like when you said that, the first thing I thought was like, well, that's kind of cool because it's like you're leveraging email to do most of the dirty work. And it's like you're just your app just becomes like an email sending app instead of creating all these crazy things like notification systems and yeah. a million options. Yeah, I think I guess it could go either way. I, I, I think the marketer in me says like, oh, well, maybe the user should have to log in. But that could be kind of an anti-pattern. Right. Like I definitely don't want to give like unsolicited advice about your app. But like if I were using that, I know like getting emailed seems like the logical choice for that type of app. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it's interesting. I've gotten some good like feedback on that, uh, where some users like myself, I, I if I get an email from a service, that's pretty often because my my service can email you. You know, it might be every couple minutes if there's a lot of like jobs coming in. Um, typically, I'd like go into Gmail, create a filter, and then like add it. Uh, but some people like don't think of that, so that was completely uh, <laughs> like this thing's spamming me. What can I do? <laughs> and I think in this case, the the solution would probably be just for me to add some kind of like, <laughs> just just inform them that they can create a filter within Gmail. Get the bottom like, seeing too much? Here's how to create a filter. Celery might have some feature to do some form of rate limiting around that. So like instead of the user getting like, you know, 17 emails in, a, in like an eight second time span, you can kind of just like roll those up for like only email them, you know, up to every two hours or something like that. Oh, sure. Yeah, I hadn't checked that out, but that could be useful. Um, what's kind of nicer or I, I guess a piece of this is that users typically do want to receive uh, the alerts because that means they're earlier to apply to the work um, oh yeah that's a great point <laughs> well that's like the whole point of the service yeah. get there before your competition replies precisely <laughs> so is your application is it a monolithic application or did, or did you break that up into microservices sure i'd say it's more monolithic although i have i mean i'm, I'm using containers which doesn't mean i'm uh, in a microservices architecture, but I'd say, yeah, it's, it's more monolithic. I'm not at like any kind of crazy scale that I'd get too much value from it. Right. And when you say crazy scale, are you, I guess, are you talking about all forms of scale, like the developer side where it's just you programming it and also like the loading scale as well? Yeah, absolutely. Both of those. Uh, but I think the former largely, um, I think you take on from what I've read more administrative kind of burden and managing all of that and monitoring, um, which today I don't really want to do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, just like deploying and monitoring one service is, is hard enough. So you definitely don't want to amplify that until you have to. Absolutely. 
Okay, so so what web server are you using for Flask? Before I was using the built-in like um, just app that run server, and recently switched to Green Unicorn um, with like four workers. So I'm not in any kind of scale right now that I need that, but it's works really well, and I I, I think it's good to have. Yeah. So then on the server itself, you're running GUnicorn as the app server. You're running Celery as well. What about uh, what about your database? Sure. Yeah. So again, everything is a Docker container. So my front end is Flask in a container. My back end or database is actually Postgres running within a container. And so those two containers just kind of talk to each other. Um, and then I also have a, again, this is why I was hesitant to say I was not microservices, but I have like a worker container um, that scrapes new jobs and then does the alerting process as well that talks to Postgres. Okay. And that, that worker container, that's all running inside of Celery? Uh, so the worker container is actually a Python script, uh, oh. but I am using, I'm using Celery for workers to do certain kind of like administrative things. So for instance, I have like a column that tracks how many alerts have been sent that day. And so I have that set to uh, get zeroed out at a specific time every day via Celery. Right. That makes sense. And um, speaking of like administrative tasks, tasks and things like that, did you roll your own admin dashboard or something else? Yeah, no, no, no admin dashboard today. It's kind of just, <laughs> uh, I don't know, all CLI. <laughs> right. So do you find yourself having to go into your database and kind of just run like ad hoc queries? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So I've got like, uh, I forget the name of the app, but it lets me connect to Postgres and then I'll kind of delete things or run queries. Uh, so it's it's really kind of archaic in that sense. But an admin, admin dashboard is, should probably be on my list. I should probably do that soon. Right. Well, when you say that app to connect to Postgres through the command line or some type of GUI app? Yeah, so it's a GUI app. What is the name? I think it's Table Plus, I want to say. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's got like the, it's an orange elephant. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I haven't heard of that one, but there's like PG Admin and DBeaver. Yeah, there's a couple of them. They're all pretty useful tools just when you have to connect. Yep, exactly. Yeah, that's a pretty interesting thing because it's like sometimes, you know, you can end up going pretty far without having to even have your own admin dashboard. Yeah, there will probably be, you know, either for this app or something else I launch in the future, a point where I'm, I like look back and think of how disgusting it was. Uh, yeah. Probably do things like the proper way. But uh, yeah, a lot of, you know, how I've kind of iterated is just getting by until I hit some kind of constraint and then build that thing. Yeah, no, that's a good way to do it because it's like if you decide to not move your app forward by creating new features that people want and it's like you just spend two weeks making an admin dashboard, you know, that's kind of like not a great outcome for your users. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, again, I think it just depends on, you know, scale. As a single developer, I think for me it works out really well that way. Um, and I don't always have, you know, a lot of time to dedicate. So, so going back to like the rest of your tech stack, uh, when it comes to Celery, so you can choose a couple of different backends for that. Do you know which one you're using? Yeah, I'm using Redis today, uh, which again, just runs as its own container. Right. So we've talked about quite a few containers here. It's like you've got the web app, you have your administrative thing, you have the Celery worker, Redis and Postgres. And you also mentioned Docker. So are all of these containers composed with Docker Compose? Yes, uh, that was a pretty recent change, actually about a month ago or so. Um, yeah, it used to be independent containers and <laughs> like I would, I would launch each container. I just had the, like saved in my Git repo, the, the command that I needed to mount, like 
have my volumes mounted and everything. Um, and I recently moved to Docker Compose. So now it's all like super simple, just Docker Compose up and I'm, I'm good. Oh, wow. So you, even in development, you were running the containers manually? Yeah, it was uh, a little MacGyvered. Like I, if I wanted a new feature, I'd just connect to my database and uh, I, I'd have my front end running locally and then connect to my database in AWS and like pray things don't go badly. <laughs> right. So when it comes to some other bits of your, of your tech stack, uh, when you actually run this application in production, are you just exposing the internet straight to G-Unicorn or do you have Nginx in front of it or something else? Yeah, it's uh, straight to G-Unicorn today. So I'm running um, in AWS, uh, which I have some experience with from work. Um, so I just use security groups and expose uh, my port. Um, and that's actually, so my domain is forwarding through Cloudflare and hitting uh, port 80. And then doing SSL through Cloudflare as well. Yeah, I was just going to ask you like, What's up with SSL? Cloudflare it is. Exactly. I love Cloudflare. Yeah, it's very nice. But for the app itself, uh, do you even do you have also like like a load balancer in front of that or no? Right. No. No load balance, balancer today. Um, I experimented early on um, using Nginx, but ultimately just decided I didn't want to do that yet. <laughs> well, speaking of AWS, um, what made you go with them in the first place? Yeah, so I had just used AWS through work, um, uh, working as an SRE in the past and was really familiar with the platform. Um, I love AWS. I'm, I'm a little bit of a fanboy. Um, I don't think my app needs to run on AWS. It, I have a pretty simple setup today, but I do. I actually have kind of drifted away from this, but I was deploying through Terraform, which is like way too hardcore for this single app. Uh, but I've got like my provider file. I'm, I'm looking right now on ec2.tf uh, and security groups defined in there. All infrastructure is code. So. <laughs> uh, but it could, yeah, I could easily run on, you know, like DigitalOcean or Linode or one of those. Do you happen to know what type of instance type that you're using? Yeah, I believe I'm on a T2 Nano, um, which is pretty small. Um, I think it's a gig of RAM and like one vCPU. Right. Yeah, if you, if everything runs on there and it all fits and it all runs well, hey, sounds good to me. <laughs> That's right. T2 Micro, excuse me. <laughs> I'm looking at my notes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so there's a pretty big difference, right, between a Nano and a Micro, I think. Yeah, I believe the Nano is like 5 bucks a month and the Micro is 10 I, I might be incorrect. But I think the, the one I'm running, the Micro, is a gig of RAM and then the Nano is 512 meg. Right. Sounds right. So when it comes to that instance... Uh, what what OS are you running on it? Yeah, it's uh, Ubuntu 18.04. Okay. Yeah, that seems to be a, a quite popular one. A lot of people <laughs> run that, myself included. Yeah, I, I really love Ubuntu. Um, I've got another uh, like VPS hanging out that's on CentOS that um, I kind of just moved away from using CentOS. So Ubuntu is everywhere, pretty easy to use. A lot of people kind of, I don't know, hate on it, but <laughs> but I think it works really well. Yeah. Yeah, typically I either use the latest LTS from Ubuntu or the latest staple of Debian. Like I, I sometimes alternate between the two. Cool. Yeah, I'm I'm not doing like any crazy kernel tuning or things that I'd get better, uh, you know, performance out of using something else. So, so speaking of performance and stuff like that, um, have you done any like monitoring on your application to see like how much memory it uses when it runs and stuff like that? Today I, I'm not doing much monitoring. I recently set up uh, Prometheus and Grafana. Um, so I have an idea, but I, I'm not uh, today alerting on that. Uh, mostly just like up-down alerts. Okay. Do you want to go into a little bit more details about your Prometheus setup with Grafana? Yeah, I would love to. Um, 
so if you're not familiar with Prometheus, it's basically a poll based um, monitoring slash time series database system. Um, so on my EC2, I actually run, um, it's like a single binary that's called node exporter. Um, and that exposes a HTTP endpoint that generates uh, metrics for everything. So you'll have a line that's like your network bytes in, network bytes out, and there's like a thousand different lines of metrics that you can pull in. Um, and then Prometheus, I actually have running locally in like a home lab. And so that scrapes uh, or scrapes or hits that endpoint basically every 15 seconds, um, ingests the data into the time series database. And then Grafana is the um, kind of visualization piece for that data. Um, so with Grafana, you can, you know, create charts, um, single stat, like numbers, and just the possibilities are really endless. <laughs> Interesting. So do you actually have Grafana running on the same server or somewhere else? No. Yeah. So Gra Grafana and Prometheus run locally in my home lab. That's on the same server. And that's also a pretty tiny, like VM running uh, gig of RAM. Okay. So it is, it is not the same server as your EC2 instance. It is separate. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then I have like my home IP whitelisted so that it can hit that port. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. That's like, that's a pretty cool setup because it's like bare bones, but it's, it works. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I've got, you know, all my configs saved. So if for some reason I needed monitoring, I could move. Okay. So that handles uh, monitoring and kind of keeping track of some stats about your server and the flask app. Are you using any other like external SaaS services? Yeah, I am. I've, uh, I think I've got a pretty cool setup for this couple different things, things on this piece. So I have one additional container I didn't, that I didn't mention named container mon that I just spun up. Um, so this is a Python container that basically talks to the Docker daemon and then looks for all my other container names and then sends me a Slack alert if it doesn't find them. Um, so I'm running that. And then what's interesting about that, you know, if that container fails, okay, now you don't have any monitoring. Um, I'm actually using another external service called Deadman Snitch, which is really quite cool. Uh, so that Python container I mentioned, at the end of its polling for my containers, will reach out to this external service, Deadman Snitch, and check in. And if Deadman Snitch doesn't receive that check in, which is basically just a GET request, um, then that will send me an email alert. Um, and then I'm also using Uptime Robot for just up down on my front end. Okay. Yeah, I was going to ask like that. Dead man snitch or whatever is that like a comparable tool to uptime robot just hitting like an endpoint for a get request yeah it's i'd say dead man snitch is more for like who watches the watcher or what monitors you're monitoring you know people might have like two prometheus instances where prometheus monitors the other but then you maybe you run into like okay well these both have the same version we hit some weird bug um, so it's, it's kind of just really nice to have that external service that can ping if it's if it's not reached out to so while dead man snitch doesn't monitor everything it it kind of is being checked in with right like i'm still here i'm still here i'm still here and then once that connection's broke then dead man snitch will alert me yeah that makes sense because it was funny i was joking around in like a previous episode and it was like sometimes you don't get these alerts for like months or even like a year and you just yeah. wonder like you know is the service reporting even even working exactly yeah that dead man snitch i think in that uh, regard is really flexible like you know instead of using uptime robot i could see a scenario where maybe i use a celery worker to test that and my celery worker checks in every you know minute or 30 seconds or whatever interval um, so that's pretty cool and then you mentioned um you know mailgun for sending email that's another external service what about uh 
like error reporting and, and logging. Yeah, yeah. I recently uh, started using Sentry.io. Um, they're really awesome. Um, I haven't hit. Uh, I'm still like on the free tier for that. But if you're not familiar with Sentry.io, it basically lets you. It, it's really simple to use. You can just do like import Sentry, and then I think there's like a decorator or something. And anytime your app hits an exception, it will um, kind of log to Sentry and let you, you know, dig in a little deeper and see what happened. I haven't got an alert in a while, but I think I have that set up for Slack as well. So I really like Slack. Like I have actually a, a Python module of my own that's just for Slack alerts. So I import that and we'll always like, oh, hey, I know I've been hitting this exception a lot lately. Let's Slack alert myself. <laughs> nice. So yeah, so Slack is acting as like your single source of truth for any type of error. Yeah, somewhat. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> as long as I, <laughs> you know, call that function every time something goes wrong. Now. With your tool, can you go over a little bit about like payment gateways or is it a free service? Sure. So today it is a kind of trial to paid service. Um, and I've been you know experimenting in what way it should be paid. Um, what I think I'm going to go with or how it is now is that users are limited to a certain amount of alert, alerts per day, right? And past that, they should upgrade. Uh, but I'm using Stripe for that payment process. Okay. So then you're setting up like a subscription-based thing with Stripe? Yeah, exactly. Um, I love Stripe. It's pretty simple. It's, I, I mean, that's that's their whole pitch, right, is for developers to stand up payments. Um, and I think they deliver pretty well on that. Yeah, definitely. So have you been preparing your application for the new like SCA stuff with Stripe? I unfortunately haven't. I read a little bit about that, but uh, no. Yeah, I think it might be slightly less important for people who are not like business owners in the EU, but it's still something to keep an eye on if you're like in Canada or the US. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, I'll have to look into that. That's the thing. Like there's so many things to kind of keep up with. Uh... Yeah, it's like a never ending thing when you're, a, when you're a developer. It's like there's just more and more and more to learn. And it's kind of funny. I don't know if it's like this for you, but for me, it's like the more I learn, the more I'm surprised like things still actually work. Like it's just so... Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think everything... Uh kind of under the covers is is MacGyver together and <laughs> yeah it's a little scary sometimes yeah big time so you know you have your app running in development do you want to walk us through like what it's like to get your code running in production sure yeah that's um that's a process i've refined pretty well today uh but generally um so if i'm developing a new feature or adding something or fixing a bug um, i'll spin up my front end within a docker container and either point that to local Postgres, or I used to point to the prod Postgres, <laughs> um, test out the feature, make sure it works, and then I'll do a git push. I actually, so this is the piece I set up is just a bare git repo, um, where once I push to my remote, which is my EC2, um, that will get get a git hook, and it runs, I think it's a post, post-receive is like the script. New code is received, server sees that it moves my code into the prod directory does a docker compose build does a docker compose down and then a docker compose up which is a lot better than what i used to do unfortunately no like crazy amounts of testing today uh but maybe in the future <laughs> so you're pushing straight to the straight to the server using that post receive hook but then you're also building the image on the server as well yep exactly which maybe I shouldn't, but it's worked worked good so far. 
yeah, well, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, if it's working and not disrupting your service, then keep it up. But then it's like, you know, you have some outs if you wanted to maybe change that up with like using uh, what is it on AWS ECR, their container registry. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of options there. You could really kind of fall down a rabbit hole. Um, there's ECR and then, of course, like code pipeline and code build. So it could get, you know, really pretty intense. Uh, but I found it's it's pretty simple today. Once That whole process probably takes like five minutes. Right. And then in between the down and up, is there, well, I guess there is a little bit of downtime. Yeah, probably, you know, two to three minutes. But I found I'm not at the scale that it matters just yet. So <laughs> I might do it, you know, late one night. Try, try not to do, try not to push new changes like during US business hours. But aside from that, I just take the downtime hit because I'm not Google. <laughs> right. That's interesting though. So if you do like a like a build down up, the downtime aspect is between the down and the up. Two it takes two minutes for your application to spin up. Like if you do a compose up. Yeah, it it doesn't. <laughs> so maybe that's not quite accurate. Yeah, that's that's that was just kind of my my estimate. It it's probably less. Yeah, because I have a couple of Flask apps, and it's like if you do a down up, then it usually is about maybe like five or six seconds. But there's tricks you can do to, to to even bring that down. I'd say I'm under a minute, but over five to six seconds. Okay. <laughs> but whole process of building and everything is probably five to six. So. Yeah. Well, building definitely takes time, especially if it's like if you made like a, a change to your requirements that text file. Yep. Exactly. Previously, you said before that you're, you you kind of don't go test crazy. Do you have any automated tests that you run locally before you get pushed the code or no? Today, not really. I'll do um, linting with Black, but no kind of unit testing or anything yet. Right. Is that just because you're like racist against tests or? <laughs> uh, no, not not exactly. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I guess kind of new to unit testing, so I haven't written a lot of tests. Um, so I guess just a little bit of unfamiliarity and they take a lot of time too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they really do. But, you know, it's one of those trade-offs. It's like, the extra time up front to hopefully let you change your code a little bit faster later. Yeah, absolutely. I think eventually I will uh, because I have ran into issues, and I I think really it's an iterative process. So if I could ke- if I could write tests that catch like you know most of those errors that I run into often, um, I think that would be really helpful. Um, I don't you know need complete coverage, but I think I think there's definitely some some gains to be made there. Yeah. No, I see that. Sometimes when I do some freelance work, it's like some people are just very hung up on getting maximum, maximum coverage. Like it needs to be 98% or higher or it's useless. Yeah, that's, I guess, only one piece of the story too. Like your tests actually have to be good and test the right thing. So. Yeah, that's a big, big part for sure. Moving on from that, it's like the code is up. It's running in production. Everything is all good, Hopefully. So have you planned a little bit about uh, like disaster recovery and unexpected events? Yeah, today, not too much. So my, my DR is kind of having my code in Git and then I do um, daily backups of Postgres to S3, uh, but I'm not like multi-region or anything. So then every day, do you have like an automated script that does like a SQL dump or? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so it's just a bash script and then um, using cron to just do that every day at like noon. And then right. it dumps it to S3. So speaking of cron, do you have any other cron jobs running on your server? That is actually the only cron job, um, surprisingly. It's kind of interesting. Like I've been trying to find 
I'll, I'll think of certain things to do. And I'm like, should I do that with cron or this celery container I just made? Um, and I think lately I've been trying to do things within celery. Yeah, that's what I do too. Like if it's like a like an app specific thing, like you know, go through all like credit card expiration dates and see if they're about to expire. Like I'll always reach for celery to do that on a periodic task. Yeah, I think that's that's really quite useful. So you mentioned database backups um, and your app mostly being email-based, but do you have any content content besides database writes that happen for users? Like, can they upload their own user avatar or like any other user uploaded files? No, I'm, I'm pretty bare bones in that aspect. Um, I guess that's what's kind of driven my careless DR strategy is that, you know, once if a user misses an alert, they don't you don't want that 24 hours later. <laughs> um, yeah. So there's, yeah, there's not much to maintain uh, as far as user data. I don't have any kind of user avatars or, or dashboard or anything. So still, still on the topic there of like disaster recovery, have you ever tried just like forcefully rebooting your server and see if everything comes back up? I did that recently. So yeah, I actually just have a restart policy in Docker Compose. Uh, so if you set every service or container to restart always, um, they will come up on a reboot. I've done a reboot from SSH, but I haven't rebooted in AWS. I should probably test that. Right. Well, if it comes up when you're doing an SSH reboot, that's that's a good sign if it came back up. I think that gets me most of uh, most of my DR strategy. I, I always I, I go back to like the eighty twenty. <laughs> I think a lot for this app. So in terms of DR and like uh, my unit testing strategy, I always look for like that little bit. You know, being just me, it's like what little bit of a thing can I do that will have the most effect? Yeah, absolutely. So then like, well, I probably know the answer to this, but I'll still ask it anyways. Do you have like celery or doing any type of rate limiting? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not. <laughs> nope. No, that makes sense. Cause it's like, you know, maybe you look into that if it ever happens, but if it didn't happen, then Hey, again, I think when it becomes an issue, it'll which is not not a good way to do things in fraud, but when it becomes an issue, it'll be like mad scramble to implement. So, right, it's basically that one meme picture of like I don't test, but when I do, it's in production. Type <laughs> I thing. haven't seen that, but that's completely accurate. Yeah, I'll have to link that one in the show notes. <laughs> so we kind of walked through pretty much everything here. Although I think I I I wanted to ask you one thing before, and it kind of slipped my mind until now. Um, part of your deploy process are are you running? Uh, database migrations on every deploy? Uh, today, I am not. It is, uh, again, pretty MacGyvered in that aspect. Um, I haven't had too much issue today. Okay. So you just run those manually then, like as needed? Yeah, exactly. Are you using SQL Alchemy? Uh, so yeah, that's that's interesting. This will probably offend a lot of people, but I'm not using SQL Alchemy. Um, today, I, it's, it's all, uh, what is it, Psycho PG2, so raw, raw queries. <laughs> So we didn't even get into this, I guess, before. It's like, okay, so raw queries. Do you know, like, roughly, like, the size of your application, give or take? Yeah, I'd say it's about, it, it's pretty lean. Probably about 1,000 to 1,500 lines. 1,500 on, like, the large end. Right, and that's 1,500 of just, like, Python slash Flask code? Yeah, that's everything that's Python related. That kind of excludes any of my HTML, templating, Jinja 2, um, Docker files, and different right. things, yeah. So was there like a, a prior like decision that you made like not to use SQL Alchemy? Like was it based on just a poor experience with it or? Sure. <laughs> yeah. No, not at all. I I, uh, 
a lot of my development process, I, it's interesting. I actually started this project just kind of as a challenge. Like, can I build a SaaS? Because I didn't know, like I knew some Python, I knew a little bit of web dev, uh, but a lot of these things were really new and kind of foreign to me, whether that be like MVC frameworks or routing, like a ton of this was really new. So I, I think a lot was, uh, again, just kind of put together like, okay, how do I interact with my database? And I found like, okay, you can like make these queries. And then I later, like I, I, I today I'm, I've learned enough that I know that it's, I should be ashamed of it or, or not ashamed, but there's, there's better ways to do things. Um, so I've started to mess with SQL alchemy a little bit, but yeah, the, again, there wasn't like, Hmm, what do I use here? It was more like, how can I make this work right now? Really quickly. You think in the future, as you iterate on your application, you maybe you'll get to SQL alchemy at some point. Yeah, definitely. That's again, something I've been, I've started to play with a little bit and see how I can implement into my app. If I make something new, like I will start with SQL alchemy. Um, because today it's just a little bit of a mess, <laughs> uh, but I've, I found, and I, I don't know if it was you and I speaking about this, but sometimes I think you have to do things the wrong way to like, uh, understand the benefits of, <laughs> of the modern world. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's basically like a one line description of my entire life. <laughs> yeah. I, I love it. Uh, so th- I, th- I think that day will come where I look back like, oh man. <laughs> Yeah, that was really bad. No, that is a super important thing to bring up. It's like, yeah, like, I don't know about you for me easily, like the quickest and best way for me to learn is just to like fall flat on my face again and again and again. And then eventually it's like, oh, now things are starting to make sense. And I understand why. Exactly. I I love it. I I think the best metaphor that I found for that for like real life, um, I recently waxed my car by hand. And if you've ever done that, like before the process, you're like, oh, this won't be that bad. It's, you know, it'll take me 20 minutes or something. And after is like, <laughs> just, just terrible. Especially if it's like a hot day, you're like, there's so much car. Where did all this car come from? Yeah. <laughs> and so if I wax my car in the future, I'll definitely have like, you know, some kind of tool. <laughs> right. Yeah. That makes sense. So we're coming towards the end of the show here. So like, what are some of your best tips and, and lessons learned from working on this project? Yeah, for sure. I hope, uh, or, or I guess a lot of these are, are applicable to like single developers. Um, but I, I'd say for me, like kind of that MVP mindset of like, just get moving, even if things aren't the right way, like do things as best as you can. Um, I'd say like security is really important. So that that's the other double-edged sword, like move fast, but also think about security. So for instance, like SQL Alchemy, I was, I, you know, I've tested my app for like SQL injections and it's, it's fairly well covered there. Uh, but, but I'd say definitely I've, I've been held back by at times like being afraid to try or learn new things because they're kind of hard, but really you just kind of have to face it head on, fail, and then learn that there's a better way. So speaking of failures and, and making mistakes, do you recall any mistakes that you've made in this app that you've kind of figured out and then kind of corrected for? I had stretches early on where like my users would not get any kind of alerts at all. And I just wouldn't know about it. Um, and they wouldn't know to, they wouldn't know anything's wrong. It's not, you know, some kind of web app you're going to, and it's, it's down. Like, again, they're depending just on email. Um, and so I've added some mechanisms for that. I I think that's the biggest one. Um, aside from that, I'd say, uh, just proper, any kind of monitoring is better than no monitoring, right? Um, so monitoring doesn't have to be perfect. It it has to be, it has to work, but it doesn't have to be perfect. And you can always iterate later. Yeah. 
That's an interesting one though. Yeah, it's like if if the user doesn't get the email, they never know if anything is going right or wrong. So have you ever had like a, a customer email you and be like, hey, I signed up, but it's been like, you know, three weeks and I haven't received anything? Yeah, the, the point that I, I get that actually, if new... At the time, it was uh, a new user that had signed up, so they didn't know that anything was wrong. Uh, but I definitely had users that had been using it for a while, and then they noticed the frequency just kind of drop off, and they'd like email me. Like, hey, I haven't got an email in even like a day uh, would be enough to kind of warrant concern. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, and, and users are really kind of forgiving too, if you're kind of honest. Like, yeah, sorry about that. This is just me. I was at work earlier, kind of get to a PC. Um, it's up again. So just kind of that transparency has really helped out. I noticed, I feel like that's the same way for me too. Like developers are very understanding. I think, I think they just can relate to it. It's like, you know, you're never going to ship a program that has zero bugs. Like even, even the best of them, you know, you're going to have something go wrong. Absolutely. And, and developers even more so, I think are oftentimes, or maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but like excited to find and hunt bugs and alert somebody. Yeah. So sometimes like I have, I have almost have like a problem with that. Like if I sign up to some, you know, software as a service or whatever, I'll just naturally use it. And then I'll run into something where it's like this button doesn't work or like, yeah, I'll just yeah. find like some really like disgusting, like inefficiency. Like this page took like eight seconds to load or like I had to do 12 clicks to do this one thing. So I'll just write like a, a very kind email to the people who make it. And oftentimes like they're super cool about. They're like, "Yo, thanks a lot for the report." Sometimes they'll even give you like like months of free service because of that feedback. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I find myself doing kind of the same thing. I signed up for um, I guess some kind of forum or something recently, and like the founder added me on LinkedIn and said like, "Hey, how's it going?" <laughs> so, sometimes maybe I'm not. Uh, sometimes it's unwarranted, but I was like, "Hey, yeah, it's great, but uh, I found this bug." <laughs> uh, but I've generally had a, a positive reception there. So Stetson, thanks a lot for coming on the Running In Production podcast. It was really nice having you on the show. Absolutely. Thank you, Nick. So before we wrap this up, um, do you want to share any links to your site, like GitHub profile, Twitter account, stuff like that? Yeah, sure. Um, if you want to check out the app, it is earlybird.io. Bird spelled B-R-D in typical startup fashion. <laughs> um, and then I'm on Twitter as Stets underscore one zero. Cool. So that's S-T-E-T-S underscore one zero. Sounds good. Thanks again, Stetson. Awesome. Thank you so much, Nick. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.